on the web at wagp.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, Star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we welcome questions you may have as you've been studying God's Word, maybe some particular passage that has been challenging or you're uncertain of or how it applies in your life or you need some biblical counsel. Well, if we can help, by the grace of God, we'll do the best we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone and call us directly. The number is 525-1859 is the local number. We have a toll-free number for our Internet listeners, and that number is 877-924-7980. That will get you through as well. And the phone's already begun to ring, and we're glad that you're calling. If you want, you can dictate your question when you call in, and she'll just copy it onto the screen in front of us, or you can go on the air live. People also email us uh, through TBL for the Bible line, tbl at net. And if you email us, that question will pop up on the screen in front of us as well. So we're happy to take your question however uh, you would like to give it this morning. Rick, as always, it's good to be here. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we've already got a live caller ready to go on, so let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi there. Good morning, gentlemen. How are y'all? Doing well. Thanks for calling. How can we help? Good. I was discussing with my brother the other day, and he was talking about the, just the infallible Word of God, and uh, he was telling me that there was no way that the earth was ever flooded back in the Great Flood, and uh uh, you know, what uh, What reference can I look up that uh, next time we get together and chat that I can show him um, right off the top of your head? What would you suggest? Well, I would start him, I would encourage him by beginning to read Genesis 6 through 9, because in that whole section of Scripture, it describes the great flood and how uh, how it took place. And God's really, really clear uh, in terms of what happened, then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth and the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water and the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. In other words, he's saying the highest mountain in the world was covered 
with 15 cubits, who would be, in other words, 22 plus feet above the highest peak upon the earth. So God explicitly says that the whole world was covered. Now, this is, you know, a problem for, you know, the liberals of our day, because they often start with the presupposition that there's no such thing as the miraculous. Well, if you don't believe in the miraculous or that God can intervene in human history, then you're going to have great trouble with the flood. And so there are many liberal theologians of our day who discount Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Uh, I think of a local pastor, and uh, I, I said to those folks, I said, look, just ask him what he believes about Genesis 1 through 11. Is it historical or is it something else? And he admitted the pastor, at least he was truthful. No, it didn't actually happen. He said, that's just a parable. Those are just um, interesting stories that may teach us spiritual lessons. But there was not a real person named Adam and Eve. There was not a real person named Noah and a real flood that covered the whole earth. Well, the Bible says there was, says it happened. And that's what Jesus said, by the way. And so your brother, too, needs to contend with the words of the Lord Jesus and to see whether or not he's going to believe what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. And so, by the way, I didn't give you the reference, but I had just read Genesis 7, verses 17 through 19. And then the Lord Jesus said, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So Jesus taught a worldwide flood. He taught that uh, all were taken away, of course, with the exception of those who were in the ark, eight persons in all the Bible teaches. And so for Jesus to say that Noah was a real person, that the flood was a real historical event, he's either a liar or he's telling the truth. Now, again, liberal theologians, when they read a text like that, they say, well, Jesus was just accommodating himself to a commonly held story of the day, and he used that as an illustration. Well, if Jesus was accommodating himself to an untruth, then he was telling a lie, and if he told a lie, then he was a sinner. If he was a sinner, he's not the savior of the world. And so Jesus viewed the worldwide flood as a real historical event. Apart from what the Bible says, there's also some great uh, information that someone could study that shows there was a worldwide flood in terms of the geology of the world. Um, There was a brother in Christ by the name of Henry Morris. Uh, He was just a genius. He's been in heaven for a number of years, one of the great geologists that lived in the 20th century. And he wrote a book called The Genesis Flood. It's not easy to get through. But people who especially have a scientific mind who want to, you know, use their so-called study and expertise to argue against a worldwide flood have been challenged by this work. Um, it's a it's a masterpiece. There's things, too, written on a much simpler level through Ken Ham's ministry on a more popular level. That's written for the scientists. Uh, but there are some books that are written on a more popular level. If you go to answersingenesis.org and type in Worldwide Flood, there's a number of resources, articles, and books that will come up that I think your your brother would find very helpful. But, for instance, why is it that they found fossilized lobsters uh, 
in rock formations in Colorado. How, how is that possible? Well, it was possible if there was a worldwide flood. How did the great uh, Grand Canyon form? Did it take millions of years, as some people say? Well, some people want to argue that this planet has been around for millions and billions of years in a long, slow evolutionary process. Or there is other explanations, like a worldwide flood that could have created in a fast movement of time the kind of erosion and canyon that we have that we call the Grand Canyon. So there's a lot of geological uh, formations and evidences that point to a worldwide flood. So that's where I would start with him. It ultimately becomes an issue, is the Bible true? Is the Bible the inspired and inerrant word of God? And that's another question to ask and answer in of itself. But no one can read the Bible and say, well, the Bible doesn't teach there was a worldwide flood. Because the Bible plainly teaches there's a worldwide flood, whether it's what's recorded in Genesis or whether it's the words of the Lord Jesus or whether it's the words of the apostles. For instance, in Second Peter chapter 3, he reminds us, know this first of all, that in the last days, and those are the days we're living in, mockers will come after their mocking, following after their own lusts. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. So Peter is saying to the uh, person who says, um, who teaches the false doctrine of uniformitarianism, that everything is uniform, everything has stayed the same, nothing has ever changed. God created the world, at least they admit that much. That's a fact most people want to deny today. Uh, But he hasn't been involved in his creation It's the old deist theology, you know, God just wound up the universe like a clock and he's letting it run all by himself and he's not over his creation and supervising it and engaged in the days, in the affairs of, uh, of men and nations. And, and, and Peter just reminds him, listen, God intervened before he intervened before with a worldwide flood and he's going to intervene again. And if they just remember what God did in the past, they will remember what God does in the future. And so Satan, being the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, wanting to promote his kingdom, he wants to deny what God did in the past. He wants to deny that God stepped into human history with the worldwide flood. Because if he can get someone to believe that, that God's not really involved, then he'll get them to believe that God's not going to be involved in the future, that there's a future accountability. And if this world's been around for billions and billions and billions of years and it's just going to continue, it just removes the whole idea that man is accountable to God. But if this world was created with the appearance of age, uh, when Adam was created, he wasn't an infant. He was a fully mature adult. The trees in the garden were fruit-bearing trees. They weren't little saplings. If God created the world with the appearance of age and this world is less than 10,000 years old, which I believe what the Bible points to, then we say, oh, this thing is a lot shorter than we think, and maybe it's going to wrap up sooner than we think. So um, something to chew on, something to think about. Uh, I hope that helps. 525-1859, toll free, 877 
800-242-7980, or you may email us at tbl at wagp.net. Um, we had a couple of people that were holding to go on the air, and uh, let's see if they're back on there. Stand by just one second. Um, there we go. All right. Good morning. Thanks for holding. You are on the Bible line. Oh, good morning. First of all, I want to say that different times Carl Rogie and his wife have been a blessing to me. My question today, um, uh, I know about uh, the Jebusite and King David. Um, when King David said that I think the Jebusite offered, um, offered you know, the threshing floor for, God, for David to make an offering. Right. And David said, oh, no, um, no, I, shall I offer the Lord something that costs me nothing? Right. And then, of course, there is the passage about um, all the silver and gold is mine, somewhere God said that. And then also I know in the Psalms uh, he said a cat, the cattle on a thousand hills is mine. Yes. Okay, well, I want to say something before I ask my question. Okay. First of all, I think all preachers should be denouncing Obama because he is for homosexual marriage, he is for abortion on demand, um, and that is not biblical. And I think every preacher should be denouncing him. I know about the tax-exempt status, and I think that that IRS law is unconstitutional, and I think that if Christian preachers and priests and pastors stood up and were counted for God, that God would provide for them, and God would provide even more money for them if they stood up for what's right. Because I'm telling you right now, if Obama gets elected— there is not going to be any freedom of religion. There will not be the Christian radio. I guarantee you, he he is uh, he has the potential to be the next Hitler of the world. And I just think pastors and priests and preachers should stand up and be counted and not be so afraid to lose their IRS tax-exempt status. Because as far as I'm concerned, if you give to God to get a tax break, you, you're that's evil. That that that's wrong. And uh, you give to God because it's right. That's why you give to God. But my question is, could you please tell me where the passage is about the Jebusite and the passage is about the silver and gold and the passage about the cattle on a thousand hills? Because I don't know where those passages are. I'm really bad about scripture memorization. I, I read stuff, and I kind of know, you know, it's in the New Testament or Old Testament, but I, I want to know where exactly those passages are. Well, uh, the first passage you reference is uh, found in 2 Samuel 24, and it's uh, a time in David's life where he, he did something evil. Uh, the devil prompted him to, to count basically the number of men in his army, and it was a violation of a basic principle that God had taught them that you see echoed in the Proverbs. You know, some trust in chariots, and, uh, but we are to trust in the Lord our God. And so God told them and instructed them that they were not to uh, count the forces, so to speak. Uh, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, Proverbs says, but the victory belongs to the Lord. So it's not that there's not human responsibility. There are, but we don't trust in our horses and our chariots. We may make human preparations, but our ultimate trust have to be in the Lord our God. And so God sent a pestilence upon Israel— and it was a very severe pestilence, and uh, the Bible tells us that 70,000 men of people from Dan to Beersheba died. And, of course, uh, David sought the Lord, and 
Uh, God told him what to do to to that he could stop the pestilence through true worship and sacrifice. And so, if you remember, he goes to Aruna there on the threshing floor, and Aruna tells us uh, tells him, "Look, King, um, it's my land. I am happy to give it to you. Uh, it's totally just take it. In fact, you can even have uh, the animals uh, for." Uh, you know, for sacrifice, uh, you can have um, the, 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 the wooden implements that I use to hook the oxen up for the wood. It, it's all yours, King. Just, just, just take it. Oh, King Aruna. Oh, oh, King Aruna gives this to the king. And may the Lord God accept you. However, the king said to Aruna, David said to, to, to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, uh, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor from Aruna. Um, So David did what was pleasing to the Lord. Uh, It cost him something, and it costs to give. Now, you're right. It is true that uh, it's not ours. It is God's. There are verses, for instance, like Psalm 24 um, and, and let me say, it's a reminder to me that, that God doesn't need my money. I'm privileged to give it. It says, for instance, in, in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the world, and all those who dwell in it. Uh, so it's all God's. I'm just the steward of it. Um, God has given me the, the privilege to have a, a part of what all is his is and to be the steward of it. And someday I'll give an account for that stewardship, and I need to be wise in it. Uh, it says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills in Psalm 50 and verse 10. Again, it's all God's, and we're the stewards of it. And one of the ways that we prove our stewardship is we give a tenth of that which God has increased. If if God increased in my hand, put in my hand $100, he expects me to give a tithe, $10. And people say, well, that's a lot. I try to put it in perspective for him. I said, look, if you had 10 pennies, would you give God a penny? I'll say, of course, I'll be happy to give God a penny. What if you had 10 $1 bills? Would you give God a dollar? Oh, yeah, I can give God a dollar. What if you had 10 $100 bills? Would you give God a hundred? Oh, that's a lot of money, Pastor. I don't know if I can give him a hundred dollars. Listen, a tenth is a tenth is a tenth. And God asks us to prove him in this. The scripture says that we're not to test the Lord God, but he actually invites us to test him in this particular area called tithing. And tithing is not simply an issue of percentages. It's an issue of the heart. And so he speaks of not just bringing the tithe, but the tithe and the offering. The offering was above 10%. And so there are times when God prompts the human heart to to give uh, 15%, uh, to give a tithe plus an offering. Now, to get back to your question about tax-exempt status, actually, you're a little misinformed there, so let me just gently correct you. Um, A pastor can speak against all of these issues. Now, there may come a day when you're right, when we won't be able to speak against these issues, where we won't be able to preach against homosexuality without losing our tax-exempt status. Uh, That's true. That day may come. Uh, A a church cannot officially endorse a candidate, uh, not if they choose to take a tax-exempt status, but a pastor can stand in a pulpit and say, well, I can tell you who I'm voting for, 
and it's been done. Uh, there's never been not a single case ever. And Dr. Jerry Falwell, just the year before he went to to heaven, right before the 2008 election, demonstrated that, proved that, that there's never been a singly, uh, singly argued case where a pastor or a church has ever been taken to court where they lost their tax-exempt status for um, preaching about a candidate that they are endorsing. Never. And, you know, the Democrats probably whom you think would come against uh, the moralists who are often in the Republican camp because the, the, the platform, obviously, of the Republican Party is much different from the platform of the Democrat Party. And it's not an issue, let me just say, of Republican versus Democrat. It's an issue primarily, first and foremost, of individuals. There's Republicans I would never vote for. There's some Democrats that I would vote for. Now, most Democrats uh, have left, who have conservative moral values, have left the Democrat Party because their party left them. Uh, Listen, this is the first party ever in the history of America that has officially endorsed the Romans One lifestyle in this election. It wasn't true in 2008. It's in the 2012 platform that we endorse a homosexual lifestyle. That's never happened before in the history of America. Talk about shaking your fist in the face of God Almighty. So the question that you need to ask is, you know, what party or what individual best represents my values? That's what's important. And my values ought to be dictated by God's values. So it's not a matter, too, of of voting your pocketbook. It's a matter of voting what pleases the Lord. It's a matter of doing what's right in just in the eyes of God. Listen, there's 50 million Americans that are missing. They've been aborted. 50 million Americans. Um, And so, yeah, it's very uh, disturbing to me. One, like when our president, whom I still pray for and I will pray for as long as he's the president of the United States, because God commands me to pray for him. But it is very disturbing when he basically makes homosexuality a minority issue. If I was an African-American, I'd come out of my seat. I'd say minority issue. Listen, this is a choice you make. I didn't have a choice to be Hispanic or African-American or Chinese or whatever it is that God made me. God made me that way. But I have a choice with my minority, with my, my, with my morality. And there's a big difference. You know, we're, we're talking about the Social Security system falling apart in 20 years because we've got, you know, 10,000 people every day now, 10,000 people every single day retire, uh, the baby boomer generation. And when Social Security was started, there was four people, or six people actually, in support of every one retiree. Then it went to four people. Now it went to two people. And in 20 years, it will be one person. Uh, and, and it's unsustainable. The social security system is unsustainable. You know what? One of the reasons for it being unsustainable, there's 50 million Americans that are missing who have been aborted. And our government has a lot of blood on its hands, Democrat and Republicans. Listen, there are Republicans who are in favor of homosexual marriage and in favor of civil unions. So you need to vote a candidate, not just a party. It's not a matter of, well, I'm just going to vote a straight party ticket. You need to vote for the person who best represents kingdom values, 
Those are some of the things that ought to dictate our decision-making when we go into that, into that booth. So um, anyway, I hope that helps. Appreciate the caller. Let's go to the next question. Indeed. And it's more than 50 million Americans when you consider the exponential yes, factor. Oh, that's right. Think about, think about those Americans who had they gotten married and had babies by now. And, you know, we've messed up with God's order of things. We've, we've really messed things up big time. And we're, we're doing things that are, I just don't know how much longer God's going to put up with it. And now we are coming into, you know, there's a, there's a progression in Romans 1. I, I preached a sermon, Is It Okay to Be Gay? And it's online at our website, right, Rick? At searchthescriptures.org and, and at cbcabuford.org. I know it's, it's on both websites, actually, because it's aired on the and, radio. And on YouTube. Yeah. And so um, I walked through that progression in Romans 1. First, God gives people over to heterosexual immorality. And then the next stage is heterosexual immorality and then all kinds of vices. We're moving now from the second into the third stages. And when you come into the third stages, you have a picture of what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24, where he compares his second coming to the days of Noah, where their thoughts were habitually and continually evil. That's that's the day we're living in. Mm, All right. Very good. Uh, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or you can email us at tbl at net. Bill from Topsom, Maine, writes, Have you ever read A Woman Rides the Beast by Dave Hunt? If so, what is your opinion? I think you actually started to talk about this on our last uh, call-in program. I think it was the last question, maybe. But and you didn't expand yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've not read the book itself. Of course, I know Dave Hunt. In fact, he has a, a ministry called The Berean Call, which he was going to— uh, and then he did a radio broadcast out of it that he initially named Search the Scriptures— and, and, of course, uh, we notified him and said, oh, we've got one on the East Coast uh, by the same name. And he apologized, and he said, I should have done some research. So I think he called his radio ministry, like, searching the Scriptures daily or something. And uh, But he is a good conservative, Bible-believing Christian, and he did write this particular book. I've not read the book, but I've— uh, I've seen some um, some little brief reviews in terms of the content of the book, and his basic premise is nothing new. It's just uh, putting out in book form again what's been taught for centuries, and a number of books that have come out in the 20th century taught the same thing, Dwight Pentecost, John Walford, uh, Norman Geisler, and many, many others writing books on Bible prophecy. Uh, The the Bible teaches that there is a coming Babylon, a religious Babylon, uh, that will be uh, headquartered out of a city built on seven hills. Uh, There's only one city in the world that is built on seven hills, and that's uh, Rome. Um, And so this this city, as it's described in Revelation 12, Revelation 13, and Revelation 17— a religious Babylon is uh, is guilty of committing uh, spiritual fornication, as the Bible describes it, uh, and it's um, it's going to happen. The Bible teaches that there's a revived Roman Empire that is coming, a ten-horned beast, and out of that Roman Empire there will be one of those ten kingdoms or nations that will take predominance 
over the other nine, and from that will come the one world leader known as the Antichrist. And he will establish not simply a one world economy, but he will also establish a one world religion. And so there's political Babylon and there's religious Babylon. And interestingly, in ancient historical uh, literature, a nickname for Rome is Babylon, which I think is interesting. And uh, again, Rome is the only city in the world that has ever been known for being built on seven hills. Some think that this will be the Roman Catholic Church. I don't know if it will be the Roman Catholic Church, but I do know it will be a religion that will be headquartered in the former Roman Empire, in the city of Rome itself. I think it fits the the scenario perfectly. Um, so I would think his basic premise is correct. Uh, we can't be dogmatic, emphatically saying it could be the Roman Church. Many would say it would be because you look at John Paul II. Uh, just before he died, he had a worldwide, about two years before he died, a worldwide uh, prayer meeting. He had the Dalai Lama of Tibet. He had all these religious world leaders. He, you can see the ecumenicism that he embraced, as did basically the predecessor that he handpicked. And so uh, the theology is there uh, in the Roman Catholic Church for a one world religion, and that they are willing to embrace the other religions of the world is true. Now, they would say that people in the other world religions will be saved uh, through the Roman Catholic Church, but they can be saved nonetheless. Well, the Bible would teach there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And you can read it right from the words of the Pope himself. I have a book in my library that he wrote, which basically was a a full endorsement of ecumenical theology, that um, it really doesn't matter uh, that you come through Christ. All that was important to them is that they recognized that the Roman Catholic Church was the ultimate, you know, bastion of, uh, uh, of, of truth as they see it. So I think Dave Hunt does a, a decent job um, in terms of, you know, where he's coming from. I've not read the book, but I don't have to because I know him and he's not saying anything new. And I could point to you 10 other books that are very similar. There's really nothing new under the sun. But sometimes there's a fresh approach or a more recent look, uh, cataloging some more recent events and uh, things that are taking place. So uh, read it. I think you'd probably enjoy it. All right. 525-1859. Toll free 877-924-7980. Or you can email us at tbl at net. Darina from Augusta, Georgia, writes, uh, There's now a reality show about a Mormon man and his four wives. I saw this man interviewed on a news program, and he said that according to his Mormon beliefs, he's required to have more than one wife. And I've heard some people use the example of David and other Old Testament saints as examples of godly men who practiced polygamy. How should we as Christians answer those who try to justify the practice of polygamy by using David, Jacob, and others as examples? And does Scripture speak to why God uh, had allowed this? Well, you might want to uh, listen to a sermon I did in my series on Genesis where I deal with the subject of polygamy. And uh, it's an important subject. In fact, I just received a letter uh, within the last couple of weeks uh, from the state of Maine from a gentleman who asked me to read... uh, Uh, his position on why he felt like polygamy was true and ought to be embraced in the church today. 
And so I read it. Uh, it was nothing new. Again, there is nothing new under the sun. And then I called him and he said, oh, no, you know, you're wrong. I said, well, why did you ask me to read it if you've already made up your mind? Um, are, are you asking me to uh, read this because you're trying to convince me or are you asking for my uh, response to what you think? And he obviously didn't want my response. He basically wanted me to give an endorsement to his immorality. And he lives up in Maine. He tells me he has four wives. Well, so he's not unique. I don't think he's the guy down in your variety show here or your reality show. But I'm reminded as I read the scripture that everything that's recorded in the scripture, God does not necessarily approve. And that may surprise you to hear that, especially for me, because I'm a biblical inerrantist, but I'm not a heretic. Well, God inspires every single word in the Bible without error. He doesn't approve everything. For instance, he doesn't approve Satan's lie. He doesn't approve when Satan tempted David to number Israel, which our first caller had a question about, or our second caller. He, He didn't approve of David's adultery with Bathsheba. In fact, he disciplined him for it. And for that matter, neither does he approve of polygamy, whether it was Jacob who had, you know, four wives, basically. And again, God records it, and what he records is divinely inspired, but not necessarily divinely approved. God never endorsed bigamy, which is two wives, or polygamy, which is something, of course, that Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church, taught. Well, why doesn't God allow polygamy? Why did God seem to put up with these looser sexual values that we find recorded in the Old Testament. Well, there was a reason for it, and it has to do with the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. If you remember on one occasion, you find it in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, Jesus is questioned about divorce, and uh, the Pharisees come to him and They're coming from two different schools of thought, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. One school said, ah, you can dump your wife for any reason at all. She burns the meal. You don't like the way she looks anymore. The other school was uh, of a different view. They had a harder line, but still they allowed divorce. And Jesus said, hey, listen, haven't you read what the scripture says? In the beginning, God made them one man, one woman. Well, what about Moses? You know, he allowed divorce and Jesus said he only allowed it because of the hardness of man's heart. And so in passages like Jeremiah 31, you have a description of the old covenant heart. God says, for instance, behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their forefathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. Well, when does the new covenant start? This uh, verse, by the way, is quoted in Hebrews 10 as being enjoyed today in the body of Christ. It's still going to be enjoyed by the uh, people of Israel during the time of the great tribulation period when God uses the time of Jacob's trouble to bring about their conversion. It nonetheless is being enjoyed in the body of Christ today. So when did the new covenant begin? Well, we celebrate it every time we go to the Lord's table. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, That's what Jesus said. And so every time you drink this cup, you do it in remembrance of me. And so this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them. 
And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not teach each man again and each neighbor uh, saying, know the Lord, because they're all going to know me from the greatest of them to the least of them. Because he said, I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. And so under the old covenant, all of the animal sacrifices could not remove sin. The writer of the Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Uh, Those things were just uh, pictures, symbols of what Messiah himself was going to do. So God was looking forward to that future time when in time and space with his own blood, he would, through the death of his son, provide a way of escape. And when that would happen, everything would change. So the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, when he describes it, he says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my commandments." And so Jacob had what we might call a heart of stone. But those of us who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we have a heart of flesh. We have a, there's a new pliability that we experience that no Old Testament saint knew. That's why John the Baptist, who is the great man that he was, Jesus could say the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. And he said that right after he said, no one who's ever come out of a woman is, is greater than John. And so even the person who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than the Lord, uh, is greater than John the Baptist, because John the Baptist died before the new covenant was initiated. John the Baptist um, perished, had his head cut off, he went to heaven, but nonetheless he didn't experience the blessing of the new covenant because he never lived till the day of Pentecost. So that's the difference. That's the difference. So everything that God writes in the Bible, he does not necessarily endorse. There are things that God records that he doesn't approve. He didn't approve of the fact that, um, you know, David committed adultery, but he recorded it. And that's one of the reasons, you know, for believing in the divine inspiration of Scripture. If man had written the Scripture independently of God, some of the sins that were written and recorded uh, of those saints would never be recorded in the Scripture. We'd cover over all the blemishes and warts. But God doesn't. God doesn't hide those things. God uh, allows those things to be seen and for all to be seen. And so, and, and by the way, even those people who practice polygamy, uh, there was a price that had to be paid. Uh, there was a price for Abraham uh, making a decision uh, to have a child through Hagar. Uh, out of uh, Ishmael came 12 sons, which form the Arab nations of the world. And they have been a contentious people towards the Jewish people since their inception. Uh, it hasn't stopped, and it won't until the Prince of Peace comes back. God says, don't be deceived. Don't be mocked for whatever a man sows, this he'll also reap. So I told that man there in the state of Maine, I said, listen, under the new covenant, God would consider you an unbeliever. He didn't like hearing that. Uh, But I had to tell him the truth. I said, you are basically endorsing what God is displeased with. Jesus made it very clear. A man shall leave his father and mother, not cleave to his wives, but cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. 
All right. All right. right, Let's go to the next question. Very good. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Quincy in Aiken, uh, South Carolina, writes, what does Scripture teach about the woman's headship veiling? Was it only a cultural thing, or is it for today? Well, I think it was more than more than cultural, um, and it could be for today. Let me try to explain that the key passage that you're dealing with comes from First Corinthians chapter eleven. So let me just turn there very fast. First Corinthians chapter eleven. Uh, Paul is uh, beginning in chapter seven of First Corinthians when he says concerning the things you wrote me. Uh, he begins to address a number of issues that people had questions about. And he says here in verse 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Um, So when he affirms the headship of man, he's not denying his equality with his wife any more than Jesus is less equal than the Father, and yet the Bible says here that the Father is the head of Christ as the man is the head of the woman. Does the Bible affirm the equality of the Father and the Son? Absolutely. But it teaches that while they are equal, they have different roles within the Godhead. And while men and women are equal, they have different roles in the home and in the church and I think even in government. And so he goes on to say, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, Man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For the woman originates from the man. So also the man has birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. And so he's going back and forth here between uh, the covering, a literal covering of hair that she wears on her head, her long hair, and also a covering, a cloth covering of sort that she wore. Uh, that in that culture was a symbol of her submission to her husband. And so there are some timeless principles here, and there may be some cultural applications depending on where you live in the world. And so in the first century culture, for a woman one to have her head shaved, she was considered typically a prostitute. And so she didn't do that. And so Paul uses some hyperbole here to say, well, you know, if a woman has her head shaved, that's a total disgrace just like it would be a dishonor for a man to have long hair, for a man to look like he was a woman. And and so it is a dishonor for a woman to ignore her covering because her hair is her glory. I think there is a principle that when you look at a guy, he ought to look like a guy. Uh, His hair shouldn't be down to his waist. I'm patient with people. People find the Lord as their Savior, and 
They may come to Community Bible Church and have a big ponytail and hair down to their waist, but that's not God's ideal. But, you know, we grow people in Christ. God grows them as we teach the Word of God, and we understand that there are to be distinctions. I think sometimes women go to an extreme, and I'm not necessarily saying how long their hair should be. I'm not a legalist here any more than I'm saying what's right and proper. Some people might consider my hair too long. And uh, listen, there's some relativity there, I think, in terms of the cultural expression. People in the first century uh, wore their hair longer than we do in our day, but there's an absoluteness that you ought to be able to look at a man and say he's a man. You ought to be able to look at a woman and say she's a woman. And what I do find interesting is often in lesbian relationships, uh, there's at least one partner who will often wear her hair like a man, um, and she's denying her femininity. And so here's the principle. It's kind of like foot washing. Uh, Jesus there at the Last Supper rose up from supper, took a basin, girded himself about with a towel, and began to wash the disciples' feet. And if you remember, he does this in the context, according to Luke 22, of their having a discussion as to who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And he takes the role of a servant. And he tells us there in John 13 Uh, in terms of application, that this is something that they should do. If I, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I do. I don't think he was just giving them an example of foot washing, and so some churches do this every week. Uh, Some churches view this as an ordinance. I don't think so. I think if it were an ordinance, you'd see it somehow alluded to in the Acts of the Apostles or in the Epistles, and you don't. Um, But the point of Jesus was not foot washing, it was servanthood. And in that day, of course, you you wore open sandals. And in the summertime, the streets were covered in dust. And in the uh, rainy months in Palestine and Israel, it was liquid mud. And so when you arrived at someone's house, uh, the servant or the host or whoever would or you'd wash your feet. That was just a common courtesy, a common practice before you walked into someone's home. And so Jesus's point is we should have the attitude of servanthood. It might not be literally washing feet. It might be serving in the nursery. It might be taking a meal to someone who's sick. We ought to serve one another. He that would be great among you must be the servant of all. So there's an eternal principle, but there's a cultural application. So it is with head coverings, the eternal principle is that the man is the head of his wife. Now, if you have two heads, you have a monster. If you have no head, there's no direction. You need a head. And God teaches that the man is to be the head, the leader. And when you don't have a leader, uh, you have chaos. And really, where is it that children in a home learn to respect the police officer? Where do they learn to respect leadership in the local assembly? Where do they learn to respect leadership in the government? Well, they're supposed to learn it in the home, in the smallest microcosm of life, where a man lovingly leads and his wife lovingly submits. Now, again, a cultural expression in the first century of submission was a head covering. And that is still true in many parts of the world. We just had a Ukrainian couple here. We had about 110 missionaries that came from all over the world uh, for our recent World Missions Conference. And there was one Ukrainian couple, and they sang during the offertory hymn, and she had her head covered. 
I can look out over most congregations in Eastern Europe and immediately tell you who's married and who's single. All the single women have uncovered head. Uh, Even in the secular realm, you go to most uh, Eastern European countries today, it's beginning to change. I, I acknowledge that. But when communism first came down, you could go into almost any communist country, walk around the streets, Christian or non-Christian, didn't matter. Uh, Women who were married wore head coverings. Why? Because it was a symbol uh, that her husband was her head and that she was under her authority. Now, that's beginning to change. In America, it doesn't carry that connotation. But the timeless principle of living in submission to a loving leader hasn't changed. And in some cultures, it might be sinful not to wear a head covering. Uh, And there are some places in the world where Westerners go and uh, to be wise and to be all things to all men, they would do well to wear a head covering. But uh, so, again, you put it in the historical context, you look for the chainless changing, chainless uh, eternal principle, apply that and apply the proper cultural expression. All right, let's go to our next question. I think we have time for a few more. Indeed, five two five one eight five nine. If you have a question this morning, and uh, one listener called and had uh, asked the following, she says, "Sometimes we're called to pray out loud in groups, and this caller has noticed that sometimes there are various problems with praying this way." In another place, we're called to go into our prayer closet, which obviously means we're to pray alone. Are there examples in the Bible of praying out loud, and are there guidelines for praying out loud in groups? Well, um, you find both in Scripture. It's interesting with the three things that Jesus says that you should do in secret, uh, prayer, fasting, and giving. There's public expressions for all three as well in the body of Christ. So in other words, if the only time I pray is on a Wednesday night, and that's when I'm, quote-unquote, catching up on my prayer life, then there would be some hypocrisy to that. Why would I not have time alone with God in prayer? Why would I not uh, go to the Lord in my prayer closet? So we don't do things to be seen by men. Uh, We do things, first of all, to serve our Heavenly Father. But while there is a private expression to prayer and giving and fasting, for instance, in giving— Um, Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Uh, You don't pat yourself on the back. You don't congratulate yourself. Uh, You give to God, and God who sees in secret will reward. And yet there's public expressions of giving, like in Acts 4 and Acts 5, where people brought a gift to the apostles, and it was used for the distribution to meet needs in the church. Uh, There is a private expression of fasting, and yet in Acts 13, you see the whole church prayer and fasting and seeking God's will and God's plan. There is a private expression to praying, yet even in the Lord's Prayer, he doesn't say, uh, when you pray, pray like this, my Father who is in heaven. He says, no, our Father who is in heaven. And in Acts 4, you see the whole church assembled, and there is corporate prayer where God's people are praying together. So you find both in Scripture. I think, though, sometimes it's helpful to help people know how to pray in a group. Um, I tell people, listen, when we break down into small groups for prayer, don't don't think so much about what you're going to pray about. Just just focus on what the person who's praying is praying about. And so that you can agree in your heart with them and together 
two or more agreeing upon anything that's in the will of God, you know, going to the throne of grace boldly through the blood of, of the Lord Jesus, because that's the basis on which we approach our Heavenly Father. Uh, so you don't really think about what you're praying. You just think about what, what that person is praying. And as they're praying, God may prompt you and bring to your mind what it is that you should pray about. Again, some people think about what they're praying because they're concerned about the words they're going to use and whether they sound spiritual or not. And then who are they praying for? Then they're not praying before God. They're, they're praying before men. So again, you find expressions of both. And again, if the only time you uh, fast is when there, well, the whole church is called to fast, then, well, maybe that's not a good thing. If the only time you pray is when there's public prayer, then maybe that's not a good thing. Uh, there is to be a time in your life where these things are just between you and God, but one does not eliminate the other. Uh, and it's even like with different aspects of prayer. There is the aspect where you go into your closet, and and yet there is the aspect where you, you pray without ceasing. You can't live in your closet. Uh, there's both. It's not an either or. It's a both and. All right, let's go. Do we have time for another question? Uh, we do. Let me go to it real quick here. Going to do a little bit of juggling. But um, the next uh, listener would like to uh, know if you have to be saved in a church and if you have to be baptized to be saved um, he's read the Bible several times, feels that he's saved. Does he have to make a public declaration and uh, be baptized in order to be saved? You need to come to Friend Day this Sunday at Community Bible Church because I'm going to answer that question in depth. Uh, it's this Sunday at Community Bible Church. I'm going to give a presentation that will be an overview of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And I know for myself, I grew up going to church. I was there every Sunday. Um, I mean, I was going to church nine months before I was born. I mean, I was there every week, every Sunday, my whole life, but never had really read or studied the Bible. And then many, many years ago, I saw an overview of the Bible. And it's like all the pieces of the puzzle began to fit together. And so if you have questions like this, you need to come this Sunday. And if you can't come this Sunday, listen to the message Monday at 11 when it's rebroadcast on WAGP or go online and listen to the lesson. But it would be much better for you to come and be live and be in person for that because you'll get this booklet to take home that deals with baptism, with public confession, what their role is, how it interfaces with salvation. And your questions, I promise you, will be answered. So come this Sunday at 9.15 or 11. And if you haven't led anyone to Christ in the last year or two, you ought to come because it's going to give you a very simple way in which to present the plan of salvation so that hopefully you'll be more effective and more usable in the hand of God to introduce people with the most exciting news they will ever, ever hear. So I don't want to rush your question. It's too important. Rick, put it on for next week, and we'll start with that one. We'll talk a little bit more about it. But if this person can come on Sunday, it would be great. We're out of time. As always, thanks for being with us for the Bible Line. Have a great day. Thank you.